Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we discuss altering the U.S. policy approach in the South China Sea. On July 13th, CSIS hosted our 7th annual South China Sea Conference with over 400 attendees. During the lunchtime segment, we had the opportunity to hear from Dr. Eli Ratner, the Maurice R. Greenberg Senior Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Before joining CFR, Dr. Ratner served as the Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden during President Obama's second term, with a particular focus on security issues in the Asia-Pacific. As Eli says, his service provided a front-row seat to debates amongst senior U.S. policymakers at the highest levels on key questions for this issue. Where does the South China Sea rank in the pecking order of U.S. policy interests? How much risk should America be willing to take over the South China Sea? Eli shares the background and assumptions animating a recent article he published in Foreign Affairs arguing that time is running out to stop China's advances in the South China Sea. You'll also hear from Dr. Amy Seawright, director of the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. Amy gives context to some of Eli's research and even plays devil's advocate at times to draw out different aspects of his argument. Enjoy. For our lunch discussion today, we are really lucky to have Eli Ratner join us. Um, Eli Ratner is the Maurice R. Greenberg Senior Fellow in China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, And, uh, you know, most recently, uh, from 2015 to 2017, Eli served as the Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, covering a global portfolio, but with a particular focus on Asia and China policy and the South China Sea, North Korea, and U.S. alliances in Asia. So he really covered the issues that we're talking about today in in depth uh, from his position in the VP's office. Um, He also served from 2011 to 2012 um, as a a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow in the Office of Chinese and Mongolian Affairs at the State Department, and he covered China's external relations in Asia. Um, He's been doing a lot of thinking and writing on the South China Sea, um, including um, an article that he just published in Foreign Affairs. So we're really lucky to have with him today, uh, have him with us today to kind of delve into some of these uh, issues and kind of have a free flow conversation between us with the audience. Um, so here we go. So Eli, you just wrote this article that was quite interesting and provocative in Foreign Affairs. Why don't you tell us uh, the main, your main argument? Sure. Well, thank you, Amy, and uh, it's great to be here today. I thought a terrific set of conversations this morning, so uh, looking forward to the questions and, and this afternoon as well. Um, I thought I would, what I would first do is you know, reflect upon, in some ways, the debates that I saw within the Obama administration, particularly at the senior levels, where debates about the South China Sea often felt like people were talking past each other. And I think the, the conclusion that I drew from that, and what, what some of you may have heard me say before, is that Debates about the South China Sea, but partic- about China policy in general, but I think that about the South China Sea in general, I would characterize as proxy debates about our fundamental assumptions about the rise of China. And so people end up arguing about FONOPs or security assistance or the more particular policy dimensions of South China Sea policy when what they're really arguing are their deep-seated beliefs about the rise of China, the enduring role of the United States, the potential for a liberal order in the region. So what I wanted to do at the beginning was just lift a couple of those up. We can get into more of them in detail in 
in discussion, but just put them on the table because I think if, if you don't agree on these particular questions, then the arguments about the, the policy questions are going to be a lot less uh, fruitful. So the first question, of course, is where should and does the South China Sea fit within the pantheon of U.S. foreign policy? And I got, a, again, a front seat to this in my last job where I was covering the global portfolio. But you have to remember, of course, the South China Sea is situated within an extremely uh, complex and full U.S. foreign policy agenda uh, globally. Uh, even with Asia, within Asia, there are uh, big debates about how important the South China Sea is versus other issues, uh, North Korea comes to mind. And then within the China portfolio, there are debates about where the prioritization of the South China Sea should be vis-a-vis -vis Chinese cooperation on climate, uh, on the Iran deal, as were quite important during the Obama administration, on trade in North Korea right now uh, with the Trump administration. So again, you have to situate this issue. We, we can argue about how, how to deal with it in a microcosm, but from a US foreign policy perspective, it's important that in terms of senior policymakers are situating it within a much broader uh, set of issues. So how important is the South China Sea in general to the, US, to the United States and how, how much should it rank? Um, the second question is, uh, would effective control or Chinese domination of the South China Sea really matter to the vital interests of the United States? And again, I think there, uh, big disagreements, often implicit, uh, sometimes people arguing, well, they might want, want what we want, or the, the islands they're building aren't that important militarily necessarily, but this question of what, what would it actually mean for the United States, for, the United, for, for China to control the South China Sea uh, is, is fundamental, and, I, and again, big disagreements implicitly about that. And then finally, is there anything the United States can do about it? Uh, and I think there are people who say, no, it's a fait accompli, uh, rightfully or not. Uh, it's, it's China's destiny. Its rise is inevitable and inexorable. Uh, or that it would be too risky to try to, to, try to stop it. And therefore, really, there's, there's nothing within the bounds of something that would be acceptable to the American people or, or American policymakers to do anything about it. So I think those are, there are others, but I think those are some of the fundamental questions that, that set this question up that, that you need to um, put on the table first. And for me, you know, the South China Sea is, is a first order uh, issue for the United States, in my view, in terms of American security and prosperity, America's role in Asia, and the future, frankly, of the liberal international order. So I think it's, it's an absolute top tier issue. So I would answer yes to the first question. Second, yes, I think Chinese effective control of the United States, uh, sorry, of the South China Sea would be, yeah, right? <laughs> 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 right. There you go. So. Welcome to my brain. Um, uh, Chinese effective control of the South China Sea would be potentially quite threatening to uh, U.S. security, U.S. prosperity, and, and U.S. values in the region and, and as an extension in the world. And then finally, yes, there, there is something we can do about it, uh, or at least we haven't tried as hard as we should before we conclude uh, that, that there's not. So that's, that's sort of the tee up, and, and we can come back to those, because I think, again, those are where, where some of the debates lay. Let me just quickly lay out what the, uh, before getting into the details of, of what I wrote in the Foreign Affairs article, get into some of what I see as the, the parameters of what a policy uh, around the South China Sea should look like. What are, what are the dimensions of a strategy before you get into the specifics? Um, the first would be to get to a question that Don Emerson asked this morning about what's the goal of for the United States. The goal for the United States should be stop, stopping Chinese control of the South China Sea, full stop. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I think this is the biggest challenge to, to the United States and Asia today, and that the 
overattention uh, that I would argue was given to an alternative goal of conflict prevention or reducing tensions, uh, often wrapped around the notion of a, a Thucydides trap or seeing uh, manage avoiding war between a rising China and a and a uh, established United States as the as the primary goal that that created a a risk aversion that has led to a permissive environment for Chinese assertiveness uh, and that we're currently on a glide slope toward uh, Chinese control of the South China Sea and that stemming that is the challenge in the South China Sea that obviously yes. Uh, we also have to keep in mind uh, conflict management, but that should not be the, the lodestar of our policy. Um, China has not proven itself escalatory, as, as many argue. Uh, and in fact, uh, in my own experience, uh, when the United States has been firm, has acted on interest and principle, the Chinese have actually backed down from their assertiveness quite quickly as it relates to cyber, East China Sea, some North Korea issues, some which are public, uh, some are not, but I think this myth of this unstoppable, escalatory, willing to risk it all China is actually quite contrary to our experience over the last several years. Uh, and if you want to stabilize the South China Sea, if you want to get to a place where international law is going to be effective, where, you want, where the U.S.-China relationship will be stable, uh, and where you could get into some kind of negotiations, you're going to have to stop Chinese momentum that these kind of efforts are not going to work as long as China sees its assertiveness as leading to incremental advantage in the, in the strategic picture. So there's absolutely a priority to holding a line, stemming the tide of a Chinese sphere of influence in the South China Sea, and then we can get on to the postmodernist liberal order and, and, and some of the other aspirational visions that we have of the future of the region. But, but I think as, to, to answer Don's question, my answer would be yes, that, that should be a very specific goal. Um, second, I think we need a policy based on deterrence, and if deterrence fails, uh, denial. Uh, you know, I think there, there, there were efforts to try to induce China into a cooperative stance to try to manage some of these issues, and that hasn't worked. Uh, and I think you know, good, good for the United States for trying and good for the region for trying, but um, I think at this point the, the evidence is in. Uh, and we're going to have to think about a deterrence strategy. Um, and we ought to give China another chance uh, to, to stop its militarization, but, but we need to think about what an effective deterrence strategy is. So, you know, a few thoughts on that. Um, first, uh, this is not just about military presence and military posture. This is something Bonnie Glazer mentioned earlier. Uh, I think the, you know, the, the, the FONOPS and the, the uh, presence operations and the dual carrier operations, and that's all in well, but, but in my view, that's not deterrence. Um, that, can, that can be a deterrence signal to, de to signal the credibility and the effectiveness of your actual deterrent, um, but sailing carriers around the South China Sea is not going to deter China from using salami slicing or incremental measures to, to gain control below the, the level of escalation. And um, to use a phrase that, uh, you know, once you hear, uh, I apologize for, for using this phrase because once you hear it, you're never going to forget it. But I've heard military specialists argue that, you know, if you can skin the cat, you can skin the kitty. And the argument there is if we have the military, if, if we get the balance of power right and we have the military capabilities to defeat China in a major war, then everything will flow from there in, in terms of deterrence. And I think that's just not right. 
that we can win a big war, we can be prepared for a big war, and we're still going to lose the South China Sea, that it's not just a question of, of balance of power. Second, uh, in terms of deterrence, uh, you have to be willing to introduce risk. Um, having been, again, in meetings with senior policymakers, Dave Scheer, Ambassador Dave Scheer, who's here, was in some of these meetings. Um, at times, policymakers will say, well, we need a deterrence strategy, but not one that could potentially lead to escalation. It's sort of like, okay, you know, it hasn't been that long since I've been out of graduate school. Uh, it's, it's hard to do deterrence if you're not willing to introduce risk and instability, that you can't at once prioritize uh, stability and lowering tensions as your number one goal and, and still put forward a, a, an effective deterrence strategy. Um, third, in terms, and, and just a couple more here, third, in terms of um, how you might think about deterrence, it has to pose sufficient cost on China. And this sort of is an, is an obvious comment, but again, gets back to something uh, Bonnie Glazer said this morning. And in my view, uh, the costs obviously for China have not been particularly large for their activities in the South China Sea. So they, they have to be sufficiently large, but in my view, they also have to be focused on uh, preventing China from achieving its goals in the South China Sea should they have to be carried out. And you, you hear a lot of ideas about types of horizontal escalation in the South China Sea. We should impose costs by sanctions or by using levers around Taiwan or, or other issues in the US-China relationship. I think, that's, I think we do have to think about the, the deterrent threat that you're having to put forward if acted upon would actually have to undermine China's ability to control the South China Sea. That's my particular view. Others disagree with that. But I think that, again, is, is a condition for an effective deterrent. And then finally, you have to be willing to do it. All right, so, uh, Vice President Biden and, and senior policymakers like Tony Blinken would often say, great powers can't bluff. Uh, you really got to think about what is the United States willing to do in this instance. And for me, the way you get at that answer is you start at the very end and you work backwards. You ask yourself if China went ahead and did all the things that Bonnie Glazer described earlier, reclaimed Scarborough Reef, set up an AIDIS, started deploying uh, uh, advanced military capabilities to some of these islands. Uh, what would be the response of the United States then? Uh, and that's your deterrent threat. That's what you're going to do uh, if China walks down this road. And that's what you do. You present that now. And you say, if you go down this road, uh, this is what we're going to do. Uh, and that's, that's what I tried to lay out in the article. And then finally, just say very quickly, uh, again, to just foot stomp a point that, that uh, Senator Gardner made this morning, which is that um, this has to be, a, you know, and, and Bonnie Glazer as well, this has to be a comprehensive policy that the United States has to be leading on trade and economics. It has to be leading on politics. It has to be engaged in ideational and ideological competition. And it has to be seen as, uh, the United States has to be seen as being credible and, and being strong. And therefore, you have to put building blocks in place to execute a strategy like this, which you're not probably going to be able to do in, uh, right now in the current environment. So there, it's a multidimensional problem. Um, but let me stop there. That's, that's the overview of, of some of the thinking. And maybe we can get into some of the specifics. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, you know, we, we both served in the Obama administration, along with Ambassador Scheer and many other people in this room, uh, where many of these kinds of issues were discussed, as you, as you noted, uh, you know, the, the debates about US interests how, uh, in the South China Sea. Um, debates about you know how to demonstrate resolve and how much how much risk to accept, um, how to complicate China's uh, decision making uh, around these issues, um, and a lot of effort was put into putting some key pieces in place um, to help 
helped build out a strategy uh, working with allies and partners, things like getting rotational access to military bases in the Philippines and, uh, and working with Singapore and other partners in, in important ways and ramping up joint exercises and, uh, and presence activities, uh, sailing days like Bonnie showed in her slide, um, launching the Maritime Security Initiative to help build uh, maritime domain awareness capabilities and maritime security capabilities. But there's been a lot of criticism, including yours in your article, that um, this has not been, this was not sufficient, these steps were not sufficient to deter China from its kind of increasingly aggressive actions in the South China Sea. So um, why don't you walk us through a little bit uh, some of the uh, specific things you recommend in your foreign affairs piece, and then we can, we can talk about that. Okay, sure. Um, so I guess in a, it, it, you know, the bumper sticker would be, um, you know, we all wish China wouldn't militarize the South China Sea, um, but that, that plea seems to have not been heard or, or heeded. So if, if they don't stop, then we're going to militarize the South China Sea on our own terms. Uh, and we're going to shift from a policy predicated on restraint to a policy predicated on deterrence. Uh, I think, again, um, that, should be, that should be the caution to Beijing to see if it's interested in, in slowing down this process. And I think, frankly, again, it, it is a realistic description of where U.S. strategy should go in the event that, that China does continue marching down the path of uh, militarizing the South China Sea. So, what does that look like? Um, in the first instance, it looks like uh, being serious about supporting our some of the other claimants uh, in terms of capacity building. And I know there are, there are constraints. There's a lot of people in the room here, Amy and, uh, and others, who fought tooth and nail to get the resources that we did uh, to support some of these initiatives. But again, in, the, in perspective, they're peanuts, OK? So $425 million over five years for the Maritime Security Initiative, less than $100 million a year. If you look at the money the United States is spending on security provision around the world, I mean, we're spending between 10 and $15 billion a year in Afghanistan training the Afghan security forces. So you would conclude from that that Afghanistan is more than 100 times more important than the South China Sea, much less if you look at the money that we've spent capacity building in the Middle East and elsewhere. So we are so far from a, from a proportional bureaucratic and, and resource-based uh, strategy from where I think anyway, and, and I think probably my, a lot of people in this room agree, would reflect the importance of this issue. So um, you know, it's got to be more than a few old coast cutter, cutters here and, and maritime domain awareness. And yes, again, Amy and Lindsay, who's here, who, who has worked on these issues, know better than I the difficulties and, and the, the bar that we're starting from now. So it's not like you're going to be able to plunk down an advanced military in some of these countries next year. Um, but with a more ambitious goal, which has to be about helping these countries develop counter-intervention capabilities and real deterrence capabilities of their own, uh, and with the resources behind it, I think we can start moving uh, more quickly down that road. So there's a capacity building piece. There's an infrastructure support piece to this. Uh, and then there's, of course, our own, our own activities in terms of being more serious about enforcing international law and, and standing up both politically and militarily to Chinese assertiveness. And, and part of the, the looming, probably the most controversial piece of what I wrote is that as part of that, the United States should think about um, changing its uh, policy of not taking sides in the South China Sea to one that goes about supporting 
the ability of claimants to protect some of their claims. And, and you can do that in terms of a recognizing sovereignty, but you could also do it the way the United States does around the Senkakus, which says we're not going to take a position on uh, the sovereignty dispute, but we are going to recognize country X administration uh, over this area. And I think that's, again, um, thinking about uh, an environment in which China has decided it does not respect the, the status quo in the region, how long can the United States sustain a policy of saying, well, you know, we're going to remain neutral and uh, we're going to we're going to support a policy of restraint. So those are the those are the specific elements without, in the South China Sea. And then again, making the argument that, that this has to be in, in the context of a more comprehensive policy and uh, in, including U.S. economic leadership and on issues like TPP. And I've said before, uh, there is no, in the absence of that, there is no military solution to this problem or American leadership in, in Asia, period. Uh, and so if, if the Trump administration thinks a 350-ship Navy uh, is going to reassert American power in Asia or in the South China Sea without engaging in uh, something, either the TPP or something equally ambitious, then they're fooling themselves because there are these perceptions of a future-led China economic order that's shaping the decision-making around security issues. So the, the economic piece is really important, and then the political piece is important, too, because publics in the region are going to have to be willing to buy on to willing to take risk against China more than they have to date. And I think that's going to require a combination of belief in American credibility as, whether, as well as a much better job of the United States to be engaging in uh, Again, ideational competition, wh whatever you want to call it. I mean, huge props to, to Greg Poling here for being probably uh, the best source of information in the world on Chinese activities in the South China Sea, which is terrific that it's happening here at CSIS, but the US military has these pictures every day. Uh, and uh, we haven't done as good a job of sharing that information. Now, we don't want to put you out of business, Greg, but um, if, if we were doing that, but. Uh, I've always felt that, yes, we have to protect our sources and methods, but yes, also, uh, when the PLA is parking a destroyer within, China, within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone over the horizon in Scarborough Reef, the Philippines people should be seeing that every single day. And the, the Philippines politicians should be asked about that every single day. And there's no reason we should wait for the once every three months images coming out of CSIS to provoke that kind of... Uh, political reaction within the region. Um, let me ask you to, uh, I think the most provocative part of your article is in, in part of the taking sides argument, move away from neutrality, take sides. And in particular, you recommend that the United States actively support and even engage with uh, partners and allies to help build up their uh, build up their, for, their, their outposts, including reclamation, and, and help fortify them. Um, and so in addition to other things you've already mentioned, um, counter-intervention capabilities um, and conducting more joint exercises and other things. But you know, on this taking sides argument, I think um, I have two questions. You know, one is, uh, wouldn't this just enmesh the United States in really messy historical disputes that have no clear basis for resolution in international law. And then secondly, um, you know, if the United States were to take an active role in land reclamation and, and outpost fortification, I mean, this would clearly run the risk of violating the very international law that the United States 
um, has, has claimed to be upholding. We saw in the environmental and legal panel just before lunch, um, all of the important uh, aspects of the arbitral award that related to environmental provisions, ob environmental obligations under UNCLOS. So it seems to me like that would lead us pretty quickly into direct violation of those kinds of obligations. Um, and, you know, the other argument that's been percolating today as well is, you know, we're one year out from the uh, arbitral tribunal ruling, and they're real, as, as I, think, I think Don Emerson laid it out, there really are two different ways to view it. One is that game over, nothing happened, it's in the dustbin of history, it had no effect. But the other uh, argument is, look, it's now maritime case law. Southeast Asia lawyers and government officials have been poring over this for a year. I know in my discussions when I'm out in the region with maritime officials in the region, they, are, they have been looking at this case very closely and thinking about not just in relation to China, but in relation to other neighbors, you know, how, how this adds to their diplomatic and legal toolkit and how they want to consider using it. So there may be, a, there may be a more effect to international law uh, and this arbitral award going forward than, than we can see in the present moment. So uh, jumping off now and just saying, we tried it, didn't work, we're going in a very different direction, pure, muscular, kind of military uh, work with our allies and partners, um, doesn't that run a real risk of, of upending the apple cart? So yes, it does. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, this is a really hard problem. Uh, and if there were easy solutions that didn't involve risks and challenges and messiness, then we would have tried them already. So I'm, I'm going to address each of these. But I think the, uh, you know, what, one of my reactions to the many excellent critiques that I've gotten about this piece is, OK, what's your plan? Uh, and, and again, my view is that we're not in sort of a status quo stable environment. We're in an environment of a slide toward a Chinese sphere of influence in Southeast Asia that would have a devastating effect on multiple vital interests of the United States. And if you believe that, then, then you gotta, you got to change the equation here a little bit. So um, let me take a couple of those in turn. I mean, the first, the question of does this, does this get the United States more entangled in, in disputes, I think, in a sense, yes, as you articulated. But the purpose of the strategy as it's outlined is, is actually the opposite which is to enable countries to provide frontline deterrence uh, themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and that is where we need to get to in Asia, because actually where we are now is that every act of assertiveness in the South China Sea is all of a sudden a test of US credibility mm -hmm. and a test of the US commitment and deeply embedded in the US-China relationship. And I think what we want to do from a US perspective is, in a sense, share, distribute the capability and distribute the risk such that it isn't always just China against the United States. And you have to solve for the problem of these are China's sovereignty uh, disputes, not the United States. It's China's backyard. The United States is really far away. So bringing in partners who are more capable, who both are uh, subject to the sovereignty disputes uh, and will have absolute political will over these unquestionable political will over some of these issues is, is really important. So again, that's how I think this is actually a long-term strategy for getting the United States out of having to be at the frontline defense of, of some of these disputes. Um, the second uh, question of uh, does it violate international law and, and what about the arbitral tribunal and the negotiations? Uh, again, I got some very good critiques, one from Julian Ku on the Lawfare blog, which I thought was excellent. Um, you know, there's only so much you can do in 3,300 words, which is a bit of a punt. But I think what I would say is, as Amy and I were discussing a little bit beforehand, 
um, this kind of proposal should, in an ideal world, be subject to an interagency review that had the lawyers from the State Department and uh, the legal scholars and the diplomats and the military specialists to refine it. So I don't say it's, it's done and done and, and recognize some of these international legal requirements. Um, but I do think, again, to get back to an environment where international law is going to pertain mm -hmm. uh, and where we're going to get into an environment where negotiations are capable, there is a first order need to try to staunch Chinese momentum. Uh, and again, what, what is outlined, and I think this is, this is, again, in the critiques that I've gotten, what has been missed by some of the critics is this is a deterrent strategy, mm -hmm. right? This is a strategy that says, if you don't stop, mm -hmm. you should stop and we should use international law and we should get into negotiations. If you don't, this is what's going to happen. And so, you know, I think it's a strategy that, that would potentially succeed in giving the Chinese pause, again, if, bra if, if, if bracketed with uh, the other elements of the strategy. So, um, and if not, you know, this, you, you then have to get into the headspace of the regional security environment in which you're implementing a strategy like that, which is one in which China has absolutely blown through any expectation that it's interested at all in any of these negotiated solutions or in peaceful resolution, whether it's because it's then reclaimed Scarborough Reef and is building a facility there, or it's declared an aid is and is now enforcing it with uh, high-end military capability, um, and as well in one in which the United States has hopefully gained over time, if it pursued the kind of strategy we heard from Senator Gardner this morning, more uh, credibility and, and power in the region. So. Um, the, the environment, I'll just say, in which uh, one would be implementing the strategy would be, would be quite urgent and mm -hmm. severe, and, and more so than what we're seeing today. Um, I want to bring you back briefly to the, where you started, which is sort of the underlying assumptions of, of the arguments that, that people put out, and, and specifically your views on um, the question of what would it mean for, uh, to have Chinese control over the South China Sea. I mean, many folks say it's really not a big deal. Um, you know, f first of all, they say China does not have any kind of incentive to restrict freedom of navigation. China is as dependent on the commercial flows through the South China Sea and surrounding waterways as any other country. So just no incentive there. Uh, the status quo would hold regardless of who's on the, which outposts and with what kind of uh, military equipment. Um, the second is, as, as you alluded to, uh, you know, many critics have said, look, these even, um, even if China wanted to try to impede uh, freedom of navigation, they really can't because, first of all, the United States military has made very clear it's going to continue to fly, sail, and operate wherever international law allows, and the Chinese won't have the capability to prevent that. But also, the point is made that uh, if there was some kind of conflict, these outposts, these bases, uh, are extremely vulnerable to precision strike capabilities um, and could be uh, destroyed relatively easily. So um, can you uh, walk us through a little more why you think that Chinese control of the South China Sea is a big deal of, you know, and, and affects vital U.S. interests? Yes, and, and you know, for it being such a, a foundational argument for people who share the view that I have about the urgency of this problem, it's something that rarely gets articulated with specificity, which is what makes it a really good question. Um, and in part, you know, I think we do suffer from making conceptual arguments at, at 30,000 feet about the importance of American leadership, about the importance of the rules-based order, about freedom of navigation, these kind of issues, without bringing them down 
to a level that, uh, again, even policymakers who don't, don't work on Asia will find compelling, mm -hmm. much less the American people, for why we should be expending mm -hmm. resources and, and making sacrifices for these issues. So uh, I do think it's something we haven't done well. I would, for, for people who haven't seen it yet, I would uh, urge you to take a look at a report uh, by the National Bureau of Asian Research by a scholar by the name of Nadej Roland, who wrote something on the Belt and Road Initiative. But what she did in one of the chapters in that, it's quite interesting, is she projected forward to, I don't know whether it's 2030 or some uh, future, and said, okay, let's imagine, and this is separate from the South China Sea, but analogous, let's imagine that China has achieved its strategic aims in developing its sphere of influence. What does the world look like? How has it worked politically and economically? And you really get a, a, a real tangible feel for, for what, we're, what we're dealing with here. And I think that's thinking forward about, again, what does the region look like at the end of this process is, is a really important thing to do in terms of how it would have effects on US vital interest. Um, and, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But um, the, you know, the, other, the other thing to keep in mind here is that while it sounds like a radical proposition that the United States should prevent the emergence of a hostile or rival hegemon in Asia, this has been a fa cardinal pillar of US grand strategy for 200 years, and if you read Mike Green's magisterial 600-page book, or you know, sections of it, then <laughs> uh, you know that will be loud and clear yeah. that that you know the U.S. government has believed for at least 100 years and longer than that that this would be a problem, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it is at times hard to to get down to a dollar figure or a very specific moment. But I think there is a belief that. If the United States is not forward and does not have access to the East Asian littoral, which would result from a Chinese effective control that pushed out, undermined U.S. partnerships and, and, and uh, eroded the ability of the United States to operate there, then security threats to the United States would come home rather than being held in Asia. And so we, we, we are forward there so the threats don't come home. That's conceptual. but. I think history teaches you, and, and it's, it's sort of fanciful to think that the United States could get attacked from Asia, but uh, it's happened before, and, and it's one of the reasons why we're out there now. Uh, and so I think keeping, keeping America forward is important for U.S. security. Uh, keeping China from holding the, the levers of access, commercial access to the region as it relates to resources and markets and technology is fundamentally important. Uh, and I would be uh, impressed if someone could make the argument, someone in this room, that a Chinese sphere of influence in, around the South China Sea and Southeast Asia would lead to under, anything other than a less free uh, region. And I think for a variety of reasons, America has believed that a more liberal and democratic, however haltingly advancing of the world, matters a lot. So I think when you, when you accumulate these things together, we are getting back to uh, basic tenets of US grand strategy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the argument that China has no intention to impede freedom of navigation is, is empirically inaccurate. I think we have several exa examples of China impeding freedom of navigation in the South China Sea and using coercion at every turn against, including against US allies for political aims. Uh, so we've had coercion against South Korea, we've had coercion against the Philippines and Singapore, Japan, um, Japan um, et cetera. So the idea that, that the Chinese order will be benign or benevolent I don't think has been uh, demonstrated very clearly, and I, I wouldn't be willing to risk it. You can find Eli on Twitter at E-L-Y Ratner, and see more of his written work at CFR.org. The link to his foreign affairs article will be available in the show notes, along with the link to the video of the full conference proceedings. 
As the United States and the international community seek policy solutions in the South China Sea, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Special thanks to Eli Ratner for speaking at our South China Sea conference. The audio for this podcast was edited by Bryce Thompson. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look CSIS.org and CogitAsia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis in Maritime Asia, and check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature on China's high-speed rail ambitions. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on China-Vietnam ties. I'm Will Coulson. Thanks for listening.